Although we can't go back in time, we can reflect on our past experiences and learn from them. But wouldn't it be so amazing if we could? If you could, what would you tell yourself? This is Letters to My Younger Self. I'm Liz Gardner. Join me as we talk with some of my favorite people about their life stories and how they've learned and how we can become a little better by hearing their incredible stories. Your life may not be how you dreamed it would be when you were a teenager, but it will be a happy one. You will find love, happiness, joy, and sustainment. You may not meet the man of your dream, have a family, or even see your children grow up, but you will have people who love you, care for you, and whom you need, and who need you. Plus, you will find the greatest message to be had, or you will be a Latter-day Saint. Today on the podcast, I have Annetta Hector. She's an incredible lady. I first met her. We attend the same church here in Dallas, and back when my oldest Hayden was just a baby. I used to go and visit her and she was kind of stuck in her home because of her disability. As a child, she had polio. And so when I met her, she had no function of her legs. And I just remember feeling like she was so positive and so happy. And I couldn't believe the attitude she had when I looked at the things that she had been through. And so I had been thinking of her the last few months and I gave her a call to talk to her about being on the podcast. And I found out that she recently got diagnosed with cancer and even cancer cannot make this woman pessimistic for one minute. She is just full of positivity. She has so many amazing stories to share. Growing up in Dallas as a young black woman and basically being raised in a hospital, she has so many interesting stories and I'm just amazed at what she's been through and she's just a really wise, amazing lady and I hope you enjoy her interview today. I love it. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to interview you today, Annetta. You are just an incredible woman, and I've always been so impressed with you, and I'm so glad that you are willing to do this today. You know, I spoke to the guy who drives me, and he said to me, he said, you know, I just want to tell you that whenever I speak to you, whenever you I call you up, I just like hearing your voice. It's so positive. It uplifts me. It makes me feel good. And I, you know, I, I think to myself the part in the feminine, the feminine woman by um, Hugo or something or other, but in it it said to be charming and to get others to smile. It's one of the greatest things that anyone can do. And I hope that I do that. I, I hope if when I do pass away, people can truly say, I gave them a reason to be positive or to smile. Well, I think you're amazing. And, you know, thinking that you just finished cancer treatments a 
about an hour and a half ago and that you're on you're willing to do this podcast I just you're incredible and you really always have such a positive attitude and every time I get to talk to you I just love the experience and you totally do that you uplift everyone that you're around and I'm just I'm grateful for you well thank you thank you very much I'm grateful for being able to do that I think mainly because it's very difficult for me to physically do anything for anyone it's very difficult for me to say for instance babysit or help somebody clean their house or or do anything that could, you know, physically relieve uh, pressures that they have. So I'm glad that I'm able to mentally at least make others feel good and, and uplift them and help them in ways that might not be so measurably so if, if a physical presence was there, but it's still an able-bodied response into helping you to be positive because I know I am handicapped I, I do though know that I feel as if I can do anything as long as I do have help around me and I feel like other people can benefit from my life as I benefited from other people's lives I mean it's not just me giving to others, others have given to me, so I'm, I'm able I'm able to give that back, and I, I'm able to I'm, I'm happy about that. I love that, and honestly, that's one of the main messages of this podcast is that you know we all go through experiences, and those experiences help us to be stronger, but they also have the ability to strengthen others. And by hearing other people's stories and hearing about what they've been through, it gives us the courage to be able to do the same and to also step up when we're having a hard situation in our lives that we can really rise to the occasion. And I feel like stories are the best motivator to be able to do that by hearing other people's inspirational stories. I want to get into that and hear more about your story, but first I want to know where did you grow up and tell us a little bit about your childhood. I grew up here in Dallas, Texas where I was born. I was born at Parkland um, Hospital, the new one, not the old one, and I was born um, in 1967 on January 21st. I think I've lived in a time of, that there was a lot of transition going on. Uh, having had polio in 1959 and um, being cared for by the, uh, what used to be called Scottish Rite Hospital for Crippled Children. Now it's just called Scottish Rite Hospital for Children. But it was actually made for those children that had been afflicted with polio. My life was filled with a lot of pain. I mean, it was got operation, physical therapy, braces, a lot of falling, of course. I fell so many times, more than a normal child. And, of course, the separation from my family. People don't realize it, but back then, you didn't go home uh, like in two, three, or four weeks. You stayed in the hospital. 
until they felt that you couldn't, uh, you didn't need to stay there anymore. So that would mean you would stay in the hospital for years. And I think the longest I stayed there was two and a half years. Wow. But by the time I was 18 years old, I had spent more time in the hospital than I had spent at home. And that was just when I was my, in my teenage years. So I didn't have the bonding with the mother, my grandmother, and, and uh, the other members of my family that normally would take place. I didn't, I, I didn't, my mother and I didn't start bonding until I was like in my 20s. Uh, mainly because, and, and I mean, we, we had the arguments and things of this nature, but we didn't have all of those things when I was growing up as a teenager. Oh yeah, we had our arguments and my mother straightened me out and all of this, <laughs> things of this nature, but the truth of it was, um, my mother didn't know me, and I really did not know my mother because I had spent my formative years in the hospital. However, it really is the laughter you remember. I mean, I had a lot of good times in that hospital. Uh, too many to list. I made friends, and I made a lot of them. Uh, we would move, we, we would have movie night every week at Scottish Rite, and the women of Rotary would bring us new dresses uh, for Christmases and Thanksgiving and Easter, and they, they, they that, that helped in not having to wear the, the hospital gown that normally you had to wear on a day-to-day basis. In fact, it felt strange going home and leaving the hospital, whereas when I came back to the hospital, it felt like it was home. Wow, that's so, really interesting. I knew the nurses. I knew some of the doctors. I knew all of these people, and so I, I guess I had formed a... Uh, an affinity for that being home instead of my my actual home being home, you know, my actual family being home. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's how my childhood went. How old were you when you got polio? I was a year and nine months old. Okay. When I talked with you earlier, you said that you had received a vaccine, but the vaccine didn't work. I, I had received two shots, according to my mother. The first and the second shots from the vaccine, uh, from the top vaccine, uh, you were supposed to get three. And when they got ready to give me the third one, I, it, well, uh, it wasn't when they got ready to give me the third one. My grandmother came into my house, or rather came into my room where I was sleeping at, and said you could just smell the fever. I was just burning up, and I don't know what made her come in that that evening, or what made her. Maybe she just wanted to see a granddaughter, but she put me in the car, 
and she drove like, you know, she just drove really, really crazy because <laughs> she was trying to get into the hospital. You know, back then there weren't any ambulances uh, that would come into the black neighborhood. And so my mother had to get me there, and the police finally stopped her, and the police said that, you know, he said, y'all just need to make a way for her because she is driving like she is. Literally, they said, like a bat out of hell. Uh, so they, 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 they barely could stay ahead of her because she was, you know, they looked back there and they realized how sick I was, and they got me to Parkland Hospital. And Parkland Hospital took care of me, got the fever down, and then later on, a nurse that was traveling realized that I had polio and made sure that I went to Scottish Rite. Dr. Carroll at that time was very upset that Parkland didn't send me straight away over to them. And in fact, he called them up and literally bawled them out because he said, you all knew she had polio. She should have been sent directly to us immediately uh, because about six months passed before a traveling nurse that was going from house to house because uh, polio was, was a bad thing. People were dying from it. Yeah. I didn't know people could die from it. I just thought you got crippled from it. But no, my grandmother said no. It was so fearful that people were keeping the kids in the house. So basically, that is how I ended up with polio. We began to realize as years went on that my body was such that if you gave me a vaccine, some vaccine I would actually produce in my body and actually produce in half. One thing you said that I thought was really interesting was that you said that the ambulances wouldn't come to the black neighborhoods? No, the a ambulances would not come to the black neighborhoods. Uh, you, if you were sick, you had to get yourself to the doctor somehow or somebody had to get you to the doctor. And I don't know if many black people know about this or even white people. But if you were in an all-black neighborhood, you didn't really get ambulance service. I don't. I think that sort of changed in 1962 or 1963. But usually, no, they wouldn't take you to a hospital. They, they there was segregation there too. My grandmother said that there were places where. Like, for instance, if you were black, you you were refused. You were refused service at a white hospital. That's uh, so sad. I, I don't know if anybody knows the story of Medgar Evans, but he, was, he, he died because he was refused service. And that was back in the 1940s. So things had not yet really changed in the 1950s when I was killed. So when did you first find out that you were not going to have um, mobility in your legs? Very simply, they, I, was, I walked up until the time that I was 47. 
But the doctors had told my mother and my grandmother that by the time that I was 30, I would probably not be walking anymore. God gave me 17 more years of me actually being up and walking. But I was a baby, so I really don't remember all the things that was being said. I do know that I was put in, I used to have to wear a leg brace on my left leg as well as my right leg. And I was always, I was on crutches. So with the operations that they did, the mobility in my left leg became stronger, but the right side of me, the right leg was hit hard. And I forever drugged that leg, even after I was up walking, and even after I wasn't wearing a brace anymore, I still drugged my right leg. I just never, ever got the momentum and mobility in the right leg that I got in the left. And that was never going to happen. They would have me walk in front of them, and they would watch how I walked. The doctors would see, that's how they would look at my progression. They had me walking back and forth in the, in the exam room, and they told my mother that it was what is called foot drop. I would pick up my right leg, but I, the foot would drop right back. And so it would drop right back down as I was trying to walk. And they also told her that I was, um, the right leg was lagging behind. I was always making a step with the left leg, dragging the right leg behind. So mobility for me was never going to be, I was never going to run. I knew that. I was never going to be able to you know, do what normal children other, you know, did. I couldn't be in the band like I wanted to be. I learned how to play the clarinet, but I never marched in the band because I couldn't march. So there were things that I knew that I was never going to be able to do as I was growing up. And it was just a part of my life. It was just something I accepted. No. Yet my grandmother and my mom never denied me. And they let me try everything I wanted to try. If I failed, I failed. But they were still right there to support me trying it. My father, I never knew. I don't know what happened to him, mainly because my mother was forced by him. He basically... I was a product of a rape, and my mother was only 14 years old. She was only 15 years old when she gave birth to me, but oh, man. my mother taught me strength. My grandmother had dropsy or narcolepsy. We used to call it dropsy, you know, back, back in, uh, uh, in her day. That's what they would call it, when you just fall asleep, you just drop off to sleep for no reason. She taught me understanding understanding of my being handicapped and, and how to handle my body and if I'm feeling asleep, don't don't cook or don't try to 
cook or leave anything on the oven, you know, in the oven or anything like that. She, she taught me all of that. I had wonderful parenting. Even my great aunt, who had the ability to sing wonderfully, taught me how to use my talents, uh, how to develop them. I had the people in my life that I needed to help me to continue on because they taught me how to believe in God. And even if they didn't always follow it themselves, they taught me and I began to understand that there is a God or that there was a Jesus Christ, but I didn't know who or what he was or what they were or even what the concert was. Well, it sounds like you had great role models who taught you lots of amazing things. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit about how you felt growing up as a young black woman? I really couldn't identify with my black brothers and sisters as much when I was growing up, mainly because my life was shaped by white people, doctors, nurses, physical therapists, psychiatrists that would talk to you about how to live in the world normally and you being a handicapped person, even teachers inside the hospital system. I knew I was black, but I felt more at ease with white people and I felt ill at ease with my own people, mainly because I hadn't been around them a lot. But I had, like I said, a wise and loving grandmother who understood and helped me to see what it was that I, I, I am, because my mother was very young. I mean, let's face it, my mother's only 15 years older than I am, and she really didn't understand how come I didn't identify with being black. But my grandmother understood it, and she was the one who not only helped me to learn to be ill, I mean, at ease with my own people, but how to be, to continue to be at ease with white people, how to be at ease with, with Hispanics and Asians. Uh, my grandmother was just a wise woman and realized that because I was so young, she once told me, you don't understand us. You don't even understand your family because you've not been with us. But don't worry, as you spend more time with us, you will come to love us the way we have loved you. And she was very correct in that. So I didn't, um, it's not that I wasn't discriminated against. I didn't have the same training or the same treatment that many of, of my other kids, other brothers and, and sisters had. What do you remember about Martin Luther King? And tell us about how you felt when he died. As I was sitting in front of the television set watching when Walter Cronkite broke in with a special news. It was one of the times that I was at home from the hospital and I was with my grandmother at the time because my mother was working. I saw her break into tears. Now, you need to know that at 11 years old, I had spent, like I said, more time in the hospital. At this time, about six years now of my life was spent in the hospital at 11 than I had at home. So I didn't really understand the depth 
because I really was affected by discrimination as much due to the fact that I was always sick. Yet I knew something bad had happened. I mean, I knew it. Uh, as my grandmother broke down in tears, I knew I knew who he was. I knew what he was doing, but I didn't know quite why he was doing it. I didn't learn about his importance until I was in junior high. And then I began to learn and understand exactly what Martin Luther King and others were doing in fighting for the rights uh, that we as black people were being denied simply because of the color of our skin. But I didn't myself right off the bat process the death of uh, Martin Luther King uh, mainly because, like I said, I just didn't understand what all the fights and the warring was about. Yeah. Because, you know, I was I was sheltered. I, I'm not going to lie. I was really sheltered. What did you see after the Civil Rights Movement? What did you see how it affected your life? I was affected more by the ADA than by the first Civil Rights Movement. I attended from 6 to 11 H.S. Thompson. Now, what H.S. Thompson had was they had two classrooms, one for the lower kids and one for the kids in a higher grade. And this was for handicapped children. They also had a playroom. They had an area where we could rest in our beds. We had to take daily naps. And they had a dining area where we could go and eat. But all of this was away from other children. We never actually went out and played with the other kids. We never got that opportunity to do that at H.S. Thompson. We played in our playroom with each other. We were separated. And I didn't understand that separation. I didn't understand why couldn't we go out and play with the other kids? Why were we so separated at home? I mean, at school, when at home we could play with whomever it was we wanted to play with. But we couldn't do that at the school. They, they had laws that literally kept the handicapped kids away from normal kids so that if we got hurt or we got knocked down or something, it wouldn't be because of one of the kids pushing us or shoving us or just running around and, and you know how kids are and they may not see you and, and you get knocked down. In fact, the only interaction we ever had with other kids is when we were at home or if we were having a fire drill and then we would see uh, these children. In fact, one of the kids remembered me in adulthood from H.S. Thompson. And we sat down and we talked and we did not understand it either. But that, that was the way it was. So we were so sheltered that when the civil rights movement was going on and, and rights were being given to us, we didn't understand those rights. 
In fact, I didn't start to understand what those rights were until I went to uh, Pearl C. Anderson with normal kids. I absolutely had to, and, and they were always going, well, don't you understand? Well, no, I didn't understand. I didn't understand it because I was always hidden away from all the bad things that could be, that could happen to us. Uh, my grandmother tried to explain it to me. My mom tried to explain it to me. But when we got into the hospital, they never explained these things to us. They just basically took care of us. And the more you were in a hospital, the less you knew about what was happening if you were a black person. They did not give us a history lesson on black power or the, you know, black Panthers or any of this. They, they didn't tell us all these. The teachers never told us these things. They taught us our ABCs and one, two, threes, and that was it. Because we were taught by white teachers. And the thing that we need, to, that, that a person needs to understand about that is that back then, we were still in the South. But even if you were in the North, I found that, uh, and I found this out from talking with a dear sweet sister who came from the North. If there were any race problems, you were not made aware of them. Whether you were in the North or South, you were just not made aware of them. They just didn't tell you because most of the people that taught you were white. And if you did get taught by a black person, that black person was restricted on what they could teach you. They could teach you only the curriculum that the hospital wanted, to, wanted you to know. That's an interesting aspect of your education because, I mean, so many people can be taught things in school, but then they go home and they are also taught by their parents. But you basically growing up in the hospital because of your health problems, mm -hmm. it was like they were parental figures, but they weren't allowed to teach you anything other than school curriculum. Other than school curriculum, and that was it. So... Basically, that part of my life was missing until I was no longer no longer going to the hospital and being taught by teachers there, and I was able to be taught by black teachers in junior high and high school. Yeah. Tell us about experiences in which you felt discriminated against, whether that was because of the color of your skin or because of your disability and and what that experience was like said, for you. We weren't, it seems like this wasn't really discussed because we were so sheltered and we didn't face discrimination like our able bodied brothers and sisters. Now it's not that to say I didn't face any. When I was at a concert, I was spit on. I, I was on the uh, uh, area where I was walk, where you walk at and I was leaning up against the um, bars just watching the concert when I looked down and I realized that the guy above me had spit on me. But 
I couldn't accuse him. I didn't dare to, to you know, accuse him of it or contest it because, I, one, I couldn't prove it. And, two, I knew I was in the South, and, and I was a girl, and this was a man, and I knew right then. I mean, my grandmother and I knew not. I mean, they, they had already taught me, do not, do not try and go up against a white man or a white woman just if, if you you're being spit on or you're being pushed around you let it happen i mean this is what we were taught wiped it off and i moved away from where he was at while standing on a bus stop uh going to john b hood uh, uh, this was in when i was going to the ninth grade the uh, kids on the bus, as I was passing by, they threw little itty-bitty pieces of paper at me. I mean, just just because I was black, they just started throwing, you know, just paper at me, laughing at me, calling me nigger. But you see, they hadn't seen me walk. So they did not know I was handicapped. And so therefore, here was all these kids on this bus that were between the ages of, what, six to eight years old? Wow, they're and so young. They were young kids. And here they were just calling me nigger and throwing paper at me. So, yes, I, I have experienced discrimination, but I don't always know uh, when it comes to job if jobs if I was refused because of the fact that I was black, or if it was because I was um, handicapped. Because the moment I walked in, I could see in their faces that they were looking at my leg. So I, I don't always know if it was because I was black or because I was handicapped. But yes, I have faced discrimination not not only because I was a black person, but as I got older, as a handicapped person, because unless, of course, they had to hire a certain number of handicapped people or uh, hire a certain number of black people, I wouldn't get hired. I would just be with you. And that would be just it. Or they would come up with an excuse like, well, the job requires a lot of physical, you know, movement, a lot of this, a lot of that. So we can't really have you, you know, working for us because we don't feel like you can do the job. It would be nice about it. They would say that the job would be too much for you. That's what I would get quite a lot of. And if they only knew who they were refusing, any company that hired you would have total increase of sales because everyone would want to come in and see you because you're such a nice yeah. person. They didn't know what they were missing out on. No, they did not. But they did not care. I mean, they really honestly did not care. What they cared about was an image. They weren't always concerned with letting a person be tried out. They immediately assumed I couldn't do the job simply because I was handicapped. So in that respect, yes, I knew discrimination.
in other respects, I did not know. I mean, as far as a black person, I did not know too much discrimination there. Yeah. This year has been an important year for our country in terms of learning about black lives and learning about how they matter and learning about discrimination and trying to be a voice and to be an ally and help our black brothers and sisters instead of making them feel like they are not as important. And so my question for you is, what can we all do to be an ally to our black friends and family? When you reach them, treat them as you would a member of your own race. If they're right, support them. But if they're wrong, correct them. Because remember, you don't correct that that you don't love. And that's something that we all need to understand. Do not be afraid of, you know, the color or be sensitive to what's happening around now if they're in the wrong. They, too, need to be led and sometimes put on the right track. The only other thing I can say is, yes, you should be understanding of the plight that is happening now. I mean, our black, our Hispanics, our Asian, our Native Americans, uh, well, these people are having a hard time, and it is because of their differences. People are afraid of that that's different, and, and it hasn't really changed. But if you support them, love them, let them know, you do not share the same views of the world. You are their friend simply because it's their personality, their personage, not because of their color, not because of their, um, not because of their differences, just because of them. Now, if you can do that, then you, you, you've made it halfway because that's really all that we really need. Yeah. We need the same love and respect that everyone else. And that's it. I like that. And I like how you said that it's okay to correct someone because you might feel like, oh, I can't say my opinion about this because yeah. of the color of their skin. But being able to just really treat them just like you would any other friend. While you were telling your story, I was thinking of, but I remember specifically when I was in elementary school I was reading these books they were the American Girl doll books and I remember reading the story about Addie she was the little black girl mm -hmm. and I remember just crying and looking at my mom and saying why would they treat her like this and I just remember feeling so heartbroken that anyone would treat someone so poorly because of the color of their skin and I feel like you know, as you were talking about the discrimination that you have felt. And I think a lot of times, you know, people can say, I would never spit on someone or I would never throw paper on them. But I also think that we can take a step further and say, let me hear your story. Let me hear what you've been through and how I can help be a support to you we need to take a step further than just avoiding causing harm. Yes, yes. 
The thing about that is that you're quite right. We think that just because we accept that they're in the world and we would never do anything like that, we think, well, we're, we're above everyone else, but the thing of it is, is that if you're not really above them. You're just doing what you think is right. But getting to know a black person, a Native American, an Asian, a Muslim, uh, getting to know these people and what they think and what they've gone through gives you the opportunity to do just that old Indian saying, walk a mile in my shoes, or as it used to be said, walk a mile in my moccasins. If you understand that these people are suffering, and why they're suffering, then you will be more to having the mind of Christ and wanting to help your brothers and sisters, even if you can't do anything but pray for them. You're still going to take out that time to do that because you will have understood their fears, their likes, their dislikes, their hurts, and and what really has caused them pain. Yeah. My sister, she married a guy, his name's Quan, and he's black. I remember talking to my sister, and she was telling me one day she was driving, they were driving down the street, and somebody started honking. They couldn't figure it out, and the person was just yelling and just yelling really awful things to him, and... My sister was so upset and, you know, I obviously it upset my brother-in-law, but, you know, you meet him and he is the nicest person that you can ever imagine would not hurt a fly. But the fact that there are people that would seek him out on the freeway to show such hate and not saying that everyone is at that level, but I think that we need to be understanding what our black brothers and sisters go through. And even if you're not causing that harm, that there are programs and there are things to be able to help them. I know how there's some people that get frustrated with programs like affirmative action and they feel like mm-hmm. it's not fair, but I think that it is so important to be able to have diversity and One thing that I loved when we were at business school was how diverse the student population was. And I think that if everyone looked the same and everyone thought the same, then it wouldn't have been as rich of an experience. And so I think by having these programs that have diversity programs and different things like that, I think it really enriches schools, it enriches businesses, and really helps people to have an overall better experience. When affirmative action ended in the 1990s, it ended because of the fact that black people were now being educated well enough that they themselves could go out and achieve. But when affirmative action first started, it started because of the fact that black people were not being hired, qualified black people were not being hired. They were not being given the opportunity and the chance. And I know that this stopped a lot of qualified white people 
from, you know, getting a good job and, and the things of this nature. But you got to understand it, it, it from this point of view. After the civil rights movement happened, we were still separated. We were still equal but separate. And I remember being bust. Now, most people um, don't even know what this is. But in my ninth year, I was not going to Pearl C. Anderson. I went to John B. Hood a white school that uh, flew a Confederate flag. Wow. And I was bucked there. I literally learned how, I, I learned how to ride the bus. I literally would have to walk down, get on a bus, and the school bus would take us to John B. Hood. After there were so many fights, they used to be, oh my goodness, there were so many fights. My mother was afraid, and my mother said, you are gonna ride the city bus. My mother worked extra hours so that I could have money to ride the city bus because she was afraid that her handicapped daughter was going to get hurt. And I would have to take the city bus going downtown out to riding a bus to Pleasant Grove. And that's basically where the paper incident happened, where the kids were throwing paper at me. Because I was standing on the bus stop waiting for the bus to take me to school. And I can tell you right now, it didn't ease up when I went to Skyline High School. The principal there. I will never forget his name, Guzik. He was, he was always afraid. We, there were four kids that were handicapped, and he was always afraid for us. My mother said, why are you home at this hour? Was my, I, you know, my mother had gotten home. She was getting ready to, you know, fix me dinner, and she did not realize I had been sent home because, because uh, the principal knew that there was going to be a fight at school and was afraid that the people that would get hurt would be the handicapped people. Oh my goodness. Uh, and that happened, uh, we were sent home three times in the times that I was there. There were fights. I mean, I watched a beautiful sister uh, that I knew of, who was a friend of mine just get jumped by some black people and beat up. I mean, they just jumped her. I was so frightened. I never got to say, that's not something I would have done. I never saw her again because her folks took her out of school and, and made sure she went to a private school. Wow. It was just horrendous. There was this joke on uh, this comment. I will never forget this this comic strip and it was these kids running from school as things are being thrown at them and and names are being called you could see them you know the the, the little you know bubble uh with uh, people calling them names and throwing things at them 
and the, the kid, the little black kid going, I'm just waiting to see how my folks tell me again how hard it was for them at school. <laughs> and, I, you know, and it, it was funny at the time, but it was also the truth. My family never had this kind of trouble because they went to an all-black school, and I was no longer allowed to do that. I never got to do the traditions of Pearl C. Anderson, like in the ninth grade, you got to teach a class. I never got to do that. I never got to, uh, there were other things that happened in the ninth grade, special privileges that you were given at Pearl C. Anderson, that these were all traditions for ninth grade students. And I never experienced that because I was taken out from there and then put in a situation where we had to compete with white students. And many of us were ill-prepared for it. We just were not prepared to compete in the white world because we had not the same education as the, as the white kids that was growing up. I know that I was one of them. I, I hate to say this, but I flunked college twice until I was able to go to a, I started going to a community college. I went to Richland. But I, I was not prepared to actually be out in the world unless it was doing some menial task. I literally had to stop, stand back, and go into the situation a different way and go to a community college to start learning how to be prepared. I worked for Bank of America. I worked for a carpet company. I worked, I even worked in helping to run a school. Uh, a, a small school, but again, I, I, it, it was not something that I was prepared to do. So I know if I wasn't prepared, other black kids my age at that time was not prepared either. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that separate but equal thing, it wasn't the truth. Yeah. We were not equal to our white brothers and sisters. There's still a lot of neighborhoods and places that that the kids don't get the same opportunities educationally and they don't always get the same learning experiences and hopefully that my grandchildren will be able to look back at these times and say, oh wow, it's amazing how far we've come and I just hope that we can continue to progress and and help to be able to have a little more opportunities for everyone to have a good education because I think there are so many problems that could be solved by good education. But I wanted you to share with us a little bit about your most recent health challenges and what it was like finding out you had cancer. When I first heard that I had a mass, I knew immediately that it was cancer. In fact, I knew that it was cancer before I even went to the hospital because this is where the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in 
he was whispering to me, you're ill, you're sick. This is not the same sort of illness that you've been going through before. This is something different. So when I almost fainted, it all basically started with me almost fainting. I mean, I just went dizzy all of a sudden and the room beginning to spin around. Even though my blood pressure was back down to normal, the spirit kept telling me, go to the hospital. Go to the hospital. You are ill. And I'm glad that I did listen to the spirit because when I got there, there wasn't any fear, but it was the realization that I was ill again, that I was sick, and that I was going to have to start going through treatment. And I have this horrendous fear of needles. And I was going to have to go through all of this all over again. And I, I guess at that point in time, I felt a little sorry for myself because I just did not want to have to go through this again. And when I had to go to the hospital, when they, they admitted me, it was IV that was put inside of me. It was not only IVs, but I was always having to have shots, blood drawn. It was just this over and over thing in which I was having to go through this. And I was having to really call upon Heavenly Father to help me not to just break down um, because of the fact of the five days that I spent there, I, I it was just one needle stick after another. They had to draw blood every single day. And when I first found out I had it, I knew that the spirit wasn't lying to me. And I was so happy in the respect that I went on and listened to the spirit and the telling me, you go head on and you get your stuff taken care of. Then there was the sweetness of Dr. Wells, Dr. Sells. Uh, the way Dr. Wells was is the doctor that is actually over all of my treatment. And she's over the other doctors, a beautiful black woman who, so, I mean, just immediately threw her heart out and started supporting me and start telling me, let me tell you, this is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to be. And she was just right there immediately like I had known her for years. Uh, Dr. Sells was a tall white woman who incidentally was the woman who gave me the biopsy. And she was like, she was my best friend. Now that wasn't pity, but there was love. And with that, I thought to myself, I'm not going to pity myself. I'm not going to cry. During those four, four days, uh, I mean, sorry, during those five days, I don't know where I got the strength. And this is why I say that, you know, no person is an island. I don't know where I got the strength from. 
but I began to, to listen to these people talking to me. And then I got to meet Dr. Carlson, who is the doctor that's overseeing the cancer treatment. And he's starting to talk. He talked with me, and he said, you know what? He says, I like your attitude. He says, that's what you're going to need. He let me know that he was going to do everything he could to fight this cancer, and he wanted me to do everything that I could to fight as well and not have a consonance of being down and being out and being defeated. Then I met Dr. Cheeks, who's over the radiology department. And he, I see him every Monday. And this is a man who actually cares. He goes, well, there's my girl every <laughs> time he sees me. And he treats me as, as, again, as if I'm his best friend. He treats all of his patients like that. You can tell that these are people who really care and they want you to get well. And they want you to keep a positive attitude. And so, yes, when it first hits you, there is, you know, even though there wasn't fear in me because, and I do believe it's just because of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost being with me, having that with me to comfort me and let me know God, he immediately let me both know that God is with me. When I got home, the Holy Spirit whispered against me, call the bishop, let the bishop know that you have cancer and that you need a blessing. And that's what I did. That's exactly what I did. I let him know that I needed an old blessing before I started my treatment. And when I came home, I'm not going to lie, my brother looked at my arms. My brother said, boy, they beat you up bad, didn't they? <laughs> because I had bruises from the IVs that I had in my arms. I had two IVs, one on one side, one on the other. And, uh, of course, you know, I said, I laughed about it. But Dan said, you know what? I'm going to move in. I'm not leaving you here. And we're, we're going to fight this together. I mean, immediately, he was in there. Yeah, I'm not going to let you go down. I'm not ready to lose you. We're not going to feel bad about this. And I want to tell you something that really, really, really made me feel good. Because not one time has he let me feel sorry for myself. And the thing about this situation that really, really helped me is that when I got there, they told me that I had a 40 to 50% chance of getting rid of this and it not coming back. And this is what they say, the course that they were going to take. I'm telling you, it just made me feel, it, well, it empowered me rather than took away. And I got to thinking, I met it, you went through all of this with polio. You are not going to feel sorry for yourself because if you start doing that, 
you start dwelling on it, all it's going to do is make it come true. You're going to go the opposite direction. Your direction is going to be, you're going to be healed. And I tell you, when I started to take that direction and started to just leave it up into my Heavenly Father's hands as to what is going to be my faith, I stopped being so fearful of, um, you know, because you're afraid you're going to die. I mean, you hear the cancer word, even if you're not afraid of what is there, you're still afraid of death. And I stopped being afraid of that. And I started going, you know, if you've got to take a shot, you're just going to, you know, you're just going to, you're going to buck up and you're going to take that shot and you're going to be happy about it. Whatever they've got to do to get you well, you're going to go through with it. And since I've had that idea, I've met so many people that are positive rather than detrimental, even those people that I meet that are sick, they are to themselves fatigued. They are to themselves. They, they, they have sleepless nights. They go through the same thing I go through. But they keep a positive attitude. And I guess that's what's been doing it with me. Keep that positive attitude. Know that God is in your corner. Know that Jesus died for your sins. And know that even if things do take a turn for the worse, Heavenly Father is still going to be there with you no matter what. And so that's the way I look at it. Well, I love your faith. I think it's so amazing. And I think what you were saying is so beautiful. We don't really have control over our lives. Things happen to us. And in your case, you know, polio and cancer and discrimination and all these things happen. Like you you didn't get to pick those things but the things you have control over your attitude your positivity your faith your love for people around you and just even hearing you talk about your doctors and how much you love them and i think says a lot about you too because you're easy to love from the first minute that i met you you were easy to talk to and you just radiate positivity and Really, you haven't had an easy life. You've had a lot of challenges, and I think it would be really easy for you to sit and feel sorry for yourself. But I think you have used this gift of positivity to be a light to the world, and you've shared it with so many people around you. And I loved what you said at the beginning that physically you haven't been able to serve people in terms of scrubbing their floors or watching their babies, but mentally you've been able to help people. I can't think of a better gift that you've been able to give to the world than by sharing that light and your love that you have for all the people around you. I learned this, I think, from my grandmother who used to tell me, don't you ever knock anybody I met up with there's good and bad in every race. And you got to remember that you 
are a daughter of God. I was told that I was a child of God even before I learned the song. You know, you know, I'm a child of God. My grandmother told me that. She told Jeffrey. She told Dan and Earl. We just learned at an early life that our Heavenly Father is there to love and care for us. And so I'm grateful for her. I'm really grateful. I'm, I'm sorry she's not here at this time, but I am grateful that she taught me as much as she could about God, about Jesus, and about the Holy Ghost. Because what I've learned as a Latter-day Saint has actually elevated me to an area that I never thought I would be ever elevated. But I have learned this one thing, that if you love yourself and then turn that around and love others, if you pray and let that prayer change you and change things about you, you know, and around you, you will find that you can be positive, you can be happy, you can help others. I love, love, love people. I just, I don't know, I just love people. And I'm glad for that love. I respect people. And I'm also glad for that respect. Because I know that it doesn't matter where you come from, how rich you are, how poor you are, if you're out on the street homeless, nothing matters. The only thing that matters is that we are all children of God, and he wants us to love each other and to get along with each other. And that's, that's literally what I want to try to do, is just be able to get along with each other. Well, I think that's a beautiful thing, and I'm really grateful for you teaching us that today. So I have one last question for you, Annetta, and that is, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice, where would you go and what would you say? If I could go back in time and give myself advice, I'd go back when I was first put in a wheelchair at the age of 48. I would go back and tell myself, it's okay. I was so depressed. First, when I got the wheelchair, I was happy because I could go places that I couldn't go before, even when I was up walking. But as I began to realize that my life was going to be tethered to a wheelchair for about three years, I was depressed. I was on depression medication. I really didn't like the wheelchair. I didn't like myself. I didn't like anything. I wouldn't even read the scriptures. I was so down in the dump. And one day, I got a phone call from a dear sweet sister whose name I don't remember. But she said to me, I felt the need to call you I made some chicken soup, and I'm bringing it over. 
out of the blue, after three years of just me bragging around, me feeling sorry for myself, this dear sweet lady comes over, brings some chicken soup, sits down and talks to me like we're old friends. And the next thing I knew is she's telling me scriptures and and things of this nature and, and telling me, well, I should come on back to church and, and things of this nature. Now, that chicken soup did more for my soul and my body. It got me to reading the scriptures again, thanking Heavenly Father. I, I started praying. I started praying that day. And little by little, my spirit began to once again aligned with the Holy Ghost, and I began to pull myself out of the funk that I was in. And I began to see that I met a hey, look, it's not that bad. You know, yes, you're going to be in a wheelchair, but there isn't, you know, that you walked for 17 years. This is what I'm saying. God, my family expected for me to go down when I was 30. So did I, but I walked for 17 years. So I would go back to that time when I was feeling depressed, and I would say, you don't need this. What you need to do is to come on out and get out, meet people, go to church. Do not feel bad because it's your body that has been afflicted but not your spirit. And that is the one thing I carry with me. And that's one thing I want to leave with you. No matter what afflictions you have uh, physically, it's your body that's being afflicted, but it does not have to be your spirit. Your spirit can rise above all of the physical afflictions. And it is that that you really need to concentrate on. Learning about the scriptures, learning about people, doing everything you can to bring comfort to others. And in that doing that, you will bring comfort to yourself. What a beautiful message that you've shared with us today. Well, I just want to thank you so much for doing this interview. I really enjoyed our chat today and you definitely brought a smile to my face the whole time because I just think you are incredible and you're such an inspiration to us all. Oh, well, thank you. You know what? I'm, I'm happy that you enabled me to bring this message to the world because I want others to understand more than anything that love is, is not just a work. You need to act upon it. You need to follow through with it. So I'm grateful that you gave me this opportunity to speak. And don't don't be a stranger now. You can call up anytime, even if you just want to talk. I would like that. Well, I'll definitely do that. This is Liz Gardner. Thank you for listening to Letters to My Younger Self. I really appreciate all your support. If this episode helped you, please share it with a friend. Feel free to reach out if you have any recommendations for topics or people that you would like to hear in the next upcoming episodes. Thanks again for tuning in. 
Have a great week.